very, very quickly, you stop thinking, aren't I lucky to be alive? And you start getting annoyed if your coffee is a bit too bitter. I have experienced exactly what you speak about. And it's something that people praise me. Perhaps I've built my business on on this very idea that if it happened to them, they say to me, if I wouldn't respond in the way that you have. And I say, I say to them, without the language that you, you have used, I, I said, it's highly likely that you would because we're incredibly adaptable. What does it take to do the impossible? What does it take to level up your game like never before? What does it take for individuals, organizations, for even institutions to achieve paradigm shifting? Nothing is ever the same again, breakthroughs. Our mission is to decode the neurobiology of flow and cognitive peak performance. Access the minds of maverick scientists, groundbreaking innovators, and world-leading experts to understand what it takes to achieve ultimate human performance. So you can feel your best, perform your best, and accomplish your boldest goals. I'm your host, Rian Doris, and together with best-selling author Stephen Kotler, I present to you Flow Research Collective Radio. Hey there, Rian Doris here with Flow Research Collective Radio. Welcome to today's episode with a fellow Irishman, a huge inspiration of mine personally, and somebody who is one of the most incredible examples of being anti-fragile, of post-traumatic growth, and of peak performance in general. That is Mark Pollock. Now, I'm going to read you Mark's bio because his story is incredibly compelling. Unbroken by blindness in the late 90s, Mark became an adventure athlete competing in ultra-endurance races across deserts, mountains, and the polar ice caps, including being the first blind person to race to the South Pole. He also won silver and bronze medals for rowing at the Commonwealth Games and set up a motivational speaking business. So Mark was doing incredibly and dealing with blindness incredibly. And then in 2010, more adversity came knocking and a fall from a second story window nearly killed Mark. He broke his back and the damage to his spinal cord left him paralyzed. Now Mark's on a new expedition, this time to cure paralysis in our lifetime by, by exploring the intersection where humans and technology collide. Mark is the author of Making It Happen, He's the subject of the acclaimed documentaries Blind Man Walking and Unbreakable, The Mark Pollock Story. He has been awarded honorary doctorates by the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland and also from Queen's University, Belfast. Furthermore, he holds a diploma in global leadership and public policy for the 21st century from Harvard University, degrees from Trinity College Dublin and UCD Smurfit Graduate Business School. Mark's an incredible guy. We talk about his journey, how to develop the kind of mindset that resulted in Mark rebounding twice from two incredible instances of heartbreaking adversity and what he did from a mental perspective in order to do that. So without further ado, let's dive into the episode with Mark Pollock. Mark Pollock, welcome to Flow Research Collective Radio. It's uh, it's absolutely great to have you here. 
You're the second fellow Irishman who's joined us now at this point, which is, which is going good. And you've got an incredible story that you've shared with many in Ireland, but a little bit less so, I think, in the US, or at least within our audience, the Flow Research Collective. So I'd love to start us off with just an overview of your story. And we'll go into the specifics around lessons learned and your take on resilience from there. But let's start off with, with the narrative overview. Well, I got to go back to the good old days when I was doing my undergraduate degree in Trinity College, Dublin, uh, your old university, although I think we were there at different different times, slightly different times. But I, I was studying for a business studies and economics degree. I was in my fourth year, just about to sit my finals and graduate. And I was going to go off and start a job in investment banking. This was in 1998 when investment banking or consultancy seemed to be the thing to do for a business studies and economics graduate. And I was also rowing for the university and also for Ireland. So things were going well. I knew exactly who I was, exactly where I was going. I was that person on my way. And in the space of two weeks, I lost the sight in my good eye through detached retinas. And I'd lost the sight in my bad eye when I was five. So I had one good eye. I lost the sight in that in, in the space of two weeks. Everything changed in a moment. I went for an operation. They tried to fix it. And immediately I was no longer part of university life, no longer that person going off to start the job. And I, and I was most importantly, no longer part of my crew and club and social network. And I felt like I was going to be left behind. I, f I felt like I was going to be set on the sidelines. And I had this great sense that I needed, I needed to get things in place to, to get going. The mobility skills, just that independence to be able to move around or on your own. I got a white stick and a guide dog called Larry, who, uh, incidentally was an excellent guide dog. He got, uh, Guide Dog of the Year in 2007, which I always think it's so important to acknowledge in the UK. And uh, Shout out to Larry. Well, that's it. Well, that's it. I mean, we, we even made it to Crofts, which is a big dog festival in the UK. We're all, all of, you know, the, the British are really into their dogs. So uh, we got beaten by the hearing <laughs> dog for the deaf lobby and a few others. So uh, into second place. But, you know, I was getting... The white stick, the guide dog. I got a talking computer that gave me access to information. More subsequently, a talking phone, and I and I really just set about rebuilding that identity, getting a job, any job, going and studying a master's in business studies. Uh, more importantly, getting back into sport, back into rowing, and I went and won silver and bronze medals at the Commonwealth Games. And that first four years was simply about rebuilding my identity, pushing on, becoming an adventure athlete, racing to the South Pole over 43 days on the 10th anniversary of losing my sight in my Olympic Games, if you like, moving from that spectator feeling to being a competitor again where I felt normal. That's where the story was supposed to end, or perhaps I was going to springboard onto other adventurous uh, endeavours. And about a year after I got back from the South Pole, I was in England at a rowing event called Henley Royal Regatta. 
and I fell from a third story window onto the concrete below and broke my back, fractured my skull, it bleeds on my brain, internal injuries, the whole lot. I was in hospital for 18 months and I was set off on a, a new expedition that same transition from being a spectator to being a competitor again but I couldn't be an adventure athlete uh, it was too the combination of blindness and paralysis was I wasn't competing I was just doing the things I was just doing the expeditions but I wasn't competing and I've I've switched my attention to bringing people together to cure paralysis in our lifetime and it's all of the skills that I use to put expeditions together turning up and training, putting teams together, raising money, telling the story and pursuing what I think Stephen might call and you might call a big eye impossible goal, which is to cure paralysis in our lifetime. God, it's wild, the um, double incidence of adversity there. I mean, so just so folks are tracking there, so a decade after the blindness occurring with the detached retina in your, your second eye, the paralysis happened? Was it a decade later? Yeah, um, it was 12 years, just about, yeah, 12 years. God. Which of those adversities were more challenging to deal with from a mental standpoint? Um, it's a difficult one to, to answer because in the aftermath of blindness, once I got the technology and the mobility and when I worked alongside great people, I could go to the South Pole and not only that, I could do it in, in a race format and could be competitive. So in a way, the end point of the story with blindness, it was easier. But of course, prior to going blind, everything was, everything was standard. You know, I, I was just, I could only see out of one eye, but I was driving, I was sighted. But everything was normal. Yeah, I hadn't dealt with this big change before. However, the consequences of paralysis are way worse. They're, They're more complicated and combining that with blindness is difficult. There's no doubt about that. But I had done it before. I did have some of the tools, some of the ways of thinking, some of the mental models, some of the experience to to deal with paralysis much quicker than I than I did did after blindness you know it's kind of prompted me it maybe has brought me to to your work and Stephen's work and trying to understand now as I look back how and why did I respond as I did after blindness how and why how, did I do something similar after paralysis and uh, and of course now I think Globally, we're seeing people using a lot of these t- tools and techniques and thinking about a lot of these questions around resilience within this context of, of a pandemic. So, look, none of it's great. None, none of it's great blind or paralysis, but you got to say, I, well, I've got to say, it's interesting to look back on. Didn't like either any of it at the time. Right. <laughs> oh, God. So one of the concepts that, that we talk about and that's talked about within positive psychology is the idea of hedonic adaptation, which is that you acclimatize to shifts in your baseline circumstances much more rapidly than you would think you would acclimatize to those. And that ha- that, that is the case for both positive things and negative things. So someone wins the lottery you know, and they're happier for far less 
long than they believe they would be and then someone someone gets sent to prison for a life sentence they're unhappy for far less long than they believe they would be and they kind of return to this baseline in the middle much faster and it's a blessing on the adversity side it's a curse on the the happiness side because we you know we take things for granted and get stuck on the the hedonic treadmill but did you experience that occurring with these two incidents did you sort of return to baseline and reach a comparable level of sort of internal well-being uh yeah i mean i was i was only i was only chatting to my to my dad last night about this about the effect that staying in the house for long periods of time during lockdown how it's going to affect us and how we're going to change our behavior and how we're going to appreciate going for a pint uh in in the pub and I was I was reflecting on my time 18 months in hospital on the brink of death everything stripped away stripped bare dignity gone just lying there naked in the bed unable to move and very very quickly you stop thinking aren't I lucky to be alive and you start getting annoyed if your coffee is a bit too bitter I have experienced exactly what you speak about and it's something that people praise me perhaps I've built my business on on this very idea that if it happened to them they say to me if I wouldn't respond in the way that you have and I say I say to them without the language that you you have used I I said it's highly likely that you would because we're incredibly adaptable as human beings and the research would suggest that people do exactly as you have said they return to the level of happiness or uh, sadness that they were at prior to the accident relatively rapidly but it's it's one of those ones that we simply can't we can't make sense of we don't believe i i, I mean arguably i'm not buying your point or my point and i've gone through it because <laughs> we don't we, it doesn't make sense you know and the other thing of course is and I know you're interested in, apart from the neuroscience, you have a philosophy background. And I'm in, I have been increasingly interested in the, in the Stoics. And they have lots of these practices that even when they've been on the brink of death and when they fa- have faced risk, as Marcus Aurelius did in long periods of war in ancient Rome, they still have to practice memento mori. Uh, an invitation that you could leave life right now just to mark their cards that actually being alive and having a go at it having the chance to keep going is better than the alternative but it is an option so human beings have to even practice and we need to remind ourselves that life is not life's not bad when you strip out all of the overwhelm and burnout and stress and mess that's there when we gain clarity, I suppose. Mm. That's a great way to put it. One of the things I often think about optimizing for is accelerating hedonic adaptation or just that adaptive response in the cases of adversity. And I think even if others would adapt well, you have adapted shockingly well. So I think you should give yourself a little bit of credit for that. <laughs> but um, so, exa- yeah, accelerating that adaptive response when adversity occurs and then when 
And as positive things occur, mitigating that adaptive response as much as possible. And so on the mitigation front, practices that you can use to not adapt to positive circumstances so that you don't fall into taking positive things for granted are things like gratitude or, you know, different tools and exercises to gain perspective or abstaining from the positive things and then returning to them so that you kind of kick that response back into gear. I'm curious as to what things you would recommend on the other side to accelerate that adaptive response, which really, you know, comes back to resiliency and and post-traumatic growth. But what are some of the things that you recommend to folks who are dealing with adversity to essentially bounce back better and faster? Well, maybe I will refer back to a, a blog that I wrote two weeks after my accident called Optimist Realist or something else with a question mark at the end of it. And I was high on morphine two weeks into this experience, questioning how I how I should respond. Would I use the decision themes that I had spoken about at length after to try and explain how I'd bounced back from from going blind? Or were they simply a collection of ideas that were plausible enough that I could sell them as a talk to a corporate audience? You know, or staring staring into the abyss, was I going to use these very same tools? And as I wrote the blog, I recalled the story of Admiral Stockdale, prisoner over eight years, didn't know if or when he was going to get out of the Hanoi Hilton, uh, prisoner of war in Vietnam. And his circumstances were bleak, but he, he goes on to explain that the ones who didn't make it were the optimists because they became disappointed and demoralized when they didn't get out every Christmas and then it was the next Christmas and the next Christmas and as I wrote the blog I was trying to apply his thinking to my increasingly bleak circumstances and I think that his thinking makes him a realist and what I mean by that is I think I think Stockdale in that extreme situation was was saying that the optimists rely on hope alone and if you rely on hope alone you run the risk of being disappointed and demoralized the realists on the other hand manage to run acceptance and hope in parallel. They, they manage to do both. And when I when I speak about being a realist, I don't mean accepting the status quo with a full stop after it. I don't mean resigning ourselves to the circumstances that we're in, but I mean accepting the reality of now while keeping hope alive for a better future. And that's where I was going to in those very early days, in the, those first two weeks after my paralyzing fall. And without getting into the definitions of what an optimist is, and I know that it flies in the face of Martin Seligman's work on learned optimism, and I know Simon Sinek is a self-described optimist. And really what I mean to be a realist, we confront the brutal facts of our current circumstances as as Stockdale ad- advised we anchor ourselves with a sense of control like Epictetus the Stoic suggests like Vic- Victor Frankl suggests when he says when we can no longer change a situation we're challenged to change ourselves we've got options even if we don't like them we've always got options or decisions to make and then and the final part is to chart a path towards a better future 
fueled by hope, having clarity, understanding why we do what we do. As Nietzsche said, he who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. The idea, if you know why you're doing what you're doing, you can put up with the tough stuff. And you, in my answer here, perhaps I'm uh, speaking about some of the things that I've spoken about many times before. So I'm running through my answer pretty quickly. But these are the things that I've been thinking about for 20 years. Optimist, realist or something else. Facts, anchoring, hope. And these are the things that not only allow us to digest the the crisis, the challenge, the uncertainty as it's happening, but it also helps us to move towards the future because I don't think we can really go for it with those big goals. We can't explore hope in a meaningful way without building on a, a solid foundation of this is the way it is, the facts, without understanding that we we can actually decide what's going to happen What's going to happen next? We have some agency and then we have a chance of making hope into reality. So th these are the things that I use for the major challenges that appear, but also on a, on a kind of daily basis with, this, with the small, seemingly insignificant stuff, trying to loop back to facts. What can I do about it? Where do I want to be at, at the end of all this? God, the image there of, you know, having been a speaker and thought leader on resilience and then being faced with that level of adversity and having to have the rubber meet the road around what you were teaching to such an extreme degree is is a potent one on the stockdale paradox note one of the ways that i've heard that conceptualized which which i like related to what you're saying is that you want to be optimistic long term pessimistic short term or you know, some balance of those with obviously, as you're saying, the, the risk being hope becoming demoralizing in the short term. And one of the ways they, they talk about that is within entrepreneurship, that a lot, of, a lot of the best entrepreneurs are simultaneously and somewhat paradoxically wildly optimistic about the future, about what's possible in terms of technology, in terms of their own abilities, in terms of what they can create. But then in the short term, they're wildly pessimistic and intentionally paranoid about, you know, everything going wrong in their company in any given moment. So I think sort of being able to hold both of those two seeming paradoxes. And I think that's why the sort of maybe in, in my thinking uh, with all these different influences, the, the realist captures both of those because the, and the realist provides this kind of challenge cycle of facts anchoring hope looping round and around and around perhaps being a bit pessimistic in the short term uh optimistic in the long term but uh you know a lot of optimists would argue that that's exactly what they what they do so uh sometimes sometimes the language uh and bear in mind when i was writing that blog optimist realist or something else i was hammering the morphine in every uh every three minutes self-serving with a button so uh you know maybe looking back if i was clear of mind i, I may have named myself an optimist <laughs> oh, that's funny I mean, actually just just to pause on that for one second do you mind describing for folks i think people love to hear the vivid details of what some of these experiences are like within the minute to minute or hour to hour detail what was the pain and experience like and then 
I, I think people would even be curious as to, to how the morphine offset that and what that experience was like. What, in other words, what was the sort of state you were in internally throughout that? And then, then I'm going to pull us back to stoicism afterwards. Well, I found myself on the ground, three stories down. And uh, I always have to, when I'm speaking about, about this, because I'm based in Ireland and Europe, it was actually you know, two stories in in our interpretation, which I think is three stories in America. So, uh, so that'll cover cover both sides of the of the Atlantic. But I found myself on the ground, and I was in I was at a rowing event where I had raced at, at previously. I was just back socialising. I woke up on the ground. I have no idea. Well, look, I'd gone to bed in the house. I don't remember anything else. I suspect I got up to go to the bathroom and I used to use my hand to run along the wall to find my way. And I, my hand found an open space where the closed window should have been and I cartwheeled out. Now, I don't remember the fall. And this might, you may have a, have a view on this because I know in the early parts of mystical and then peak experiences, people, time stands still, people, are able to plan for the future while they're falling. Uh, they're able to come up with all sorts of ideas. I, I don't remember the fall. Now, I did hit my head off the ground and fracture my skull and have bleeds on my brain, massive internal injuries, broken bones. But a lot of guys on motorbikes had the same experience as me. They don't remember the fall. But so maybe we can chat about that. But But I was out, totally out on the ground. I didn't know what was going on. Two friends came and uh, stabilized my head, and one got me breathing again. And people were talking, uh, apparently, but the only voice that I really heard was a guy called Brendan Smith. And Brendan and I rode together at the Commonwealth Games um, when I was blind, and he used to make all the calls, the tactical calls, the stroke rate. And I hear, I heard his voice, calm, just got through to me, and I just did exactly what he told me to do not to move and I didn't feel anything then no pain whatsoever at that point obviously I was filled up with my own uh, self-medication coming in from the neurochemicals in my in my body and then I got to hospital and the next thing I remember is uh, staples being put into the back of my head and they just seemed to keep going and going and going which was excruciatingly sore I was only awake for, for moments then out of it again and in the hospital bed in intensive care. And I felt, I felt like I had a, a broom handle across my back and I was flat on my back the whole time. Just kept feeling, uh, feeling that something was digging into me. And it turned out it was the, it was the ribs. And I was in pretty bad shape, but there is nothing, there is nothing more painful than broken ribs. It's absolutely appalling, and and I think I think within the first forty eight hours I was self administering the morphine, and I then kept asking whoever was at my bed to wake me up, because if the pain got ahead of the morphine, it took so long to catch up that it was almost embarrassing. The pain was so bad that if I didn't get ahead of it, I would just go, I would just conk out again. So I had everyone was on a schedule to keep me awake so I could hit the button for every three minutes. But perhaps to 
to, I haven't spoken about this bit for a long time, so I'm, I, I must be quite into it. Uh, but what was noticeable was I was in one hospital for two weeks, doing this every three minutes, through the night, the whole lot. And then I got transferred from one hospital in, in an ambulance. And I, I, had no, I had no button. And it really freaked me out. And I thought, well, at least when I get to the hospital, I'll get my button, my morphine button back. And the, the new hospital had a totally different protocol that you only got the OxyContin, I think, at set levels. Two nurses had to be there you know, because it's so powerful. Not as powerful as our own endorphins from uh, my reading. But uh, but I think by that stage, I was addicted to it. Uh, I was panicking that, that they weren't going to they weren't going to give it to me. But I just felt, particularly with the ribs, I had to stay ahead of the pain. Otherwise, it took it was it was well it literally would would knock me out hey there just gonna interrupt if you are a leader a knowledge worker or an entrepreneur and you want to take your professional success to the next level while reclaiming time space and freedom within your personal life then zero to dangerous may be a fit for you Zero to Dangerous is our flagship peak performance training. You'll work one-on-one with our coaches. You'll go through our whole curriculum. You'll join a community of peak performers from all over the world. We're about seven or 800 strong at this point. It's an amazing group. So if that's of interest to you, go to getmoreflow.com, getmoreflow.com, pop an application through, takes 30 seconds. We would be excited to speak with you to see whether it's a good fit. So that's getmoreflow.com. Yeah, it's the kind of thing that, that that description is the kind of thing that grounds these experiences for people. I think the idea that literally all night long, every three minutes, you would have to have a release of morphine to, to mitigate the pain. You know, it's like it's, diff- it's difficult to even conceptualize what pain that extreme would, would be like. What I find particularly strange, and I haven't delved into why this is the case, but I mean, I I, I feel having described that to you and you know I, I, maybe my tone of voice wasn't that miserable but I, I look back at that time in a way that it you know, that was quite interesting to me to remember that I found that quite interesting to feel that and remember it I, I don't look back on it and think you know I logically think that was terrible but I look back sometimes at the hospital and think oh that, I remember that that was <laughs> fun Bits of it. Going to Costa Coffee for a coffee at the far end of the hospital eventually for a hot chocolate or or a coffee or a a pan au chocolat. You know, these were, I look back on those memories fondly and I shouldn't. It's ridiculous. So what is it? What is it that's going on at the time? Because it was pretty awful. I cried every day for six months. But at what point does your memory change to the point where you can look back on things Fondly, and it's not just with hospital. I look back on the South Pole expedition of forty-three days, right down to minus fifty, what thirty, forty-two pounds loss in body weight, moving for sixteen hours a day. That the pain in my hands and feet with the cold, you know, it was ex- nearly as, it was nearly as bad as the ribs. But my memory of that is that it was clear blue skies, crisp white snow, and. It was uh, a laugh a minute. It wasn't. But what happens in our memories to 
to scrub out the difficult nature of challenges that we take on as human beings. Yeah, one of the one of the quotes I've always loved on that note is that every recall is a reframe. So in other words, every time you remember something, you reassociate with that memory. Uh, and obviously it sounds like in this instance it's it's occurring in a positive sense, which is I, I think definitely, you know, obviously it's that's a that's a good thing overall. The other thing I wonder is whether there is a correlation between the extremity or the intensity of experience alone, regardless of whether that intensity is positive or negative, and the retrospective fondness of that experience. I think a lot of people would resonate with having fond memories of terrible times, you know, or of logically terrible times, which is an interesting one. So back to Stoicism then, I'd love to begin just by asking you, what is it about Stoicism that, that you like or that appeals to you? I mean, I think there's, there's obvious things there, but yeah, curious to start there. Well, I, I think, I mean, I didn't, I didn't start with Stoicism. I kind of started with the stories of people in extreme experiences, uh, particularly Stockdale I came across in Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. Uh, and you know that's the major thing that I remember about that book, his story. It was in that story came back to me in in when I wrote the blog. Uh, I then found that Epictetus had influenced Stockdale for twenty years. I'd been reading about Viktor Frankl and his extreme experiences in in World War Two and surviving. Uh, surviving the hol- the Holocaust and how he responded. I mean, some of the words and some of the the framing that Viktor Frankl has could be, you could have put him back in in ancient Greece and Rome, or you could take Epictetus and put him forward in uh, in World War Two. They're saying and thinking in similar similar ways, and I suppose I've been attracted to those stories, perhaps perhaps because they give a framework uh, for how I might perhaps to explain how other people responded to extreme challenges as I tried to make sense of how I was responding to my blindness and again after after the paralysis. So I think I was drawn to their stories as a way of in, of informing myself and then dig into the stoicism a bit a, a bit more if if you like. But then then you start to see the the evolution of what not just stoicism but kind of many of the of the the world religions just i'm not religious but just as a way of thinking people trying to make sense of the world uh, i particularly drawn to the to the stoics but then you start to see the, how this how some of the stoic thinking is explained by psychology and then how some of that psychology is now being explained by neuroscience and how it all stacks up we have known as human beings for thousands of years that things just make sense, even if we can't actually explain why they make, they make sense. And I find that progression in, in our understanding of ourselves and no doubt in 50 years and 100 years, there will be a, a, another ology to explain what the neurology is telling us. But it's, uh, yeah, just I think I've probably been attracted to stories of extreme human experience either in difficult times or people who are exploring and pushing boundaries the the polar explorers of 100 years ago 
the science and technology explorers who are trying to solve paralysis uh, and just those people who are just taking risks and pushing the boundaries. But yeah, it's, it's that evolution, but the Stoics just keep coming up with answers for me again and again and again. Yeah, the extent to which Stoicism is still wildly useful always surprises me every time I go back and read some Marcus Aurelius or, or Seneca. And you're, you're dead right about the overlap between Stoicism and religion. One simple example is the serenity prayer, which is God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And the, the way I always like to summarize Stoicism in three words is discern, then accept or change, you know, discern, accept, change are really the three, the three words of stoicism, which is the exact same as the serenity prayer, essentially, which is interesting. And stoicism, to be stoic is to have the, the kind of, certainly in this part of the world, the stiff upper lip, the small s stoicism, the kind of British stiff upper lip is not stoicism. You know, it's not stoic, capital S stoic philosophy because some of the practices in Stoicism, like Seneca's uh, go and lie on a kitchen floor and uh, and eat stale bread and drink rainwater as a practice while he was wildly rich and connected in high society in Rome. Sleeping in his dog's kennel. <laughs> right, correct, correct. So, you know, there's a bit of that perhaps about uh, about Seneca, but, but Stoicism, Stoic philosophy, was not devoid of emotion. And I think with a lot of these, you know, whenever we move to the solutions like facts, anchoring, hope, or some of what we what we look for in in the flow state and setting up everything in such a way that we're performing at our best, a lot of the times we're in solution mode, the sort of the ans the answer or at least the questions to find the answer. And I also have a sense based on the fact that I have experienced this deeply that human beings are highly emotional. We can't just deal with it. You know, we can't just sort ourselves out without the very necessary requirement to feel what has happened, what is happening, what's going on. And, and I think that understanding of, of, in this case, stoicism, stoic philosophy that uh, is also human as opposed to being stoic, which is anything but human, devoid of emotion. Um, I've been increasingly conscious of our, our requirements and our response to deny things, to get angry, to seek some kind of miracle, to feel sorry for ourselves, the five stages of grief, as Kub Elizabeth Kubler-Ross speaks about. But um, perhaps when we're in solutions mode and that, with that answers and reflections, maybe we miss out on those emotions sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and people definitely misinterpret stoicism as being about numbness or emotional, you know, excessive emotional equilibrium, but it, it doesn't. it's not necessarily related to that. You know, again, it's that cycle of discerning, being able to discern between what you can and cannot change and then being very, very skilled at accepting, as you've done, the things that you can't, and then taking action, you know, ferociously to change the things that you can. And, and I think you're, you know, obviously an amazing embodiment of, of both of those sides of the spectrum, the, the willingness to change 
and then the acceptance piece as well, which again, you know, can be difficult to do simultaneously a little bit like the short-term pessimism, long-term optimism piece we were talking about earlier. But Mark, I want to ask you um, one of our favorite questions here at Flow Research Collective Radio, which which we usually ask academics, but I'm curious what your what your answer is. So if you could instantly click your fingers and have all of the academic research get done in a moment to answer any question, what would that question be? Ooh, what an interesting one. What an interesting one. Well, I think that how I view the world is, is that sometimes we choose our challenges, sometimes our challenges choose us, and what we decide to do next, that's what counts. And the question perhaps is, what are those decisions? What are those decisions that we can make to adapt, perform, and collaborate better so that we can achieve more? Nice. Love that. Then on the, uh, just the final question before we wrap, on the large or capital I impossible or massively transformative purpose note, you mentioned curing paralysis. And I think folks would love to hear a little more about some of the work you've already done there because it's extremely impressive. And then secondly, where that is currently at. And then thirdly and finally, how people can help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, I had, uh, I'd been doing all my expeditions and uh, as I've, as I was explaining to you when I had the accident, I find myself in hospital going to the gym every day to do my rehabilitation and discovering that the rehabilitation was designed to get me into my wheelchair, which is where I was going to stay. And the idea that acceptance was was the end game, acceptance that I was going to be in a wheelchair full stop, felt like it was missing all of the hope side of the equation. Uh, and I found that pretty depressing. Uh, I think, as I said, I think we need both. And I also started to realize that, that there, the doctors who had saved my life and put rods and screws in my back to stabilize my spine. They were in the business of saving lives and putting stabilizing spines. The rehabilitation specialists in the hospital context were in the business of teaching me how to get in and out of my wheelchair and to be safe in this new world I was going to be living in. But they weren't the explorers. They weren't the researchers. So we started looking all around the world to see who who were those explorers. And we found people working in exercise physiology to continue a more advanced version of the rehabilitation, aggressive physical therapy. And then we found robotics engineers. They're all over the world, but particularly the group that we went to were in San Francisco, building robots to allow people to stand and walk. And then we knew that that wasn't going to be the fix. So we started to look at scientists, people using electrical stimulation of the spinal cord to excite the nervous system, to allow for voluntary movement. And we kept layering on and layering on. And then we found out that there were all these amazing people doing amazing things, but doing amazing things in isolation. So we started to make connections between the robotics group and in San Francisco and the visionary scientists at UCLA in Los Angeles. 
And we created our first major collaboration, bringing that electrical stimulation of the spinal cord technology together with the robot. And what happened was I became the first person in the world to be able to voluntarily move my legs as I did more, the robot did less. So we got a training effect over time. We got really excited about that. And then we went back to Ireland after three months of doing that study. I had my robot, but I didn't have the electrical stimulation. And what we discovered then from 2014 through to about now was that scientific breakthroughs stay in universities if they don't get into the spin-out company, if that company doesn't bring in a management team, doesn't raise the money, uh, doesn't commercialize the product. And we expect scientists not only to come up with world first breakthroughs in science, but we also then expect them to have the business skills to go through the startup process, raise millions of money and millions in, in uh, funding and commercialize devices. So we spent five years helping that company to raise $5 million. They've now merged with another company in Europe and those combined companies have have now got suitable funding. The company is now called Onward, and it looks like the external technology is going to be commercialized, hopefully by 2022, and they're working on an implantable device. And so we go again to find and connect people, to bring them together to cure paralysis. So fragmentation is the problem. Fragmentation between disciplines, fragmentation across foundations, across the investment community, across the business of spinning out technologies and research breakthroughs. And we see that all over the place. So we thought rather than raising money to spend on research or a venture philanthropy fund to invest in spin out companies, perhaps where we could make our best contribution is in discovering what is the best way to help people collaborate. What is the best way to create the conditions for collaboration right across the system? And as part of that, I turned to Chris Voss, who I know you know, uh, as I heard him on early on in your podcast. And I've spent some time with him and he's joined our advisory board to help us see how we can make those connections between people because when we get people working together that's where the big breakthroughs happen none of it none of it is an individual hero story no breakthroughs no polar exploration space exploration scientific exploration none of it is an individual hero story it's always about collaboration that's where the big breakthroughs happen and if people want to get involved if people want to get behind what we're doing we have uh, a charity called Collaborative Cures uh, that people can find at collaborativecures.com. Great. And fair play, Mark. It's amazing work. What, where else can people find out more about you as well? Do you want to mention your site and anything else? Oh, look, thank you. Yes, uh, I my speaking business, my masterclasses, the story, everything we're doing really is at Mark pollock.com that's m-a-r-k-p-o-l-l-o-c-k dot com great thanks a ton mark appreciate it if what you've heard on flow research collective radio has been helpful 
please consider doing us a solid and leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this. Reviews help us connect to a wider audience so we can get these peak performance principles out to more people.